Friends, it's Morgan, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. I was praying about what would be next. I have about 20 podcasts in the queue that have yet to be finalized. But as I was praying, I was surprised because I didn't even think of this as a podcast. But God really moved me to offer a session that I taught along with my wife, Sherry, at the Ransom Heart Homecoming this past year in Colorado Springs, where, as some of you know, we gathered like-hearted allies from around the globe to join us for just a time of filling, a time of realignment, a time of soul strengthening together with our tribe. We hope to do it more often. But in that time, I led a specific session with Sherry on cultivating habits and habitat for the soul. It's something I unpack in becoming a king, uh, particularly in the depths of the study guide, much more deeply. It's something we dive into at the intensive, and it's something that I have learned from mentors is absolutely essential in the fabric of cultivating a life where we are growing in intimacy with God, we are being strengthened and renewed as sons and daughters so that we can become the kinds of kings and queens that God can entrust more and more of the care of his kingdom. And so for us, the few like-hearted that want to be consented to God and his kingdom, that want to grow and mature, these categories of habits and habitats are essential to thriving, particularly in this hour on the earth. We are in unprecedented times faced with unprecedented challenges. And as you've heard me say likely before, I believe in that there's a particular provision that's unique to God for us in this hour and for us personally. So my hope is this teaching afresh will be a conduit for you to receive hope to receive possibility, to receive nourishment. In the teaching, I do it on video um, that you can find in the Ransom Heart tribe. This will be audio, and there are some images that I use that you won't be able to see. I start with a beautiful trailer from the Planet Earth series, and you can find that on the tribe. But getting into this session, what we did was had some beautiful cello music, and this just epic trailer of planet Earth. So in that spirit, before we turn to teaching afresh today, I want to invite you to pause. I want to invite you to sink in and just be present to find your breath, to gather the scattered parts of you to come into this present moment and to picture yourself in somewhere absolutely beautiful. Picture yourself somewhere that you're safe, that your soul is being tended to, somewhere filled with intoxicating beauty. It might be a natural landscape, mountains or rivers. It might be tucked into a cabin or a little uh, place with warm blankets and a couch, or it might be on some epic expanse of, of uh, desert or prairie. 
It might be ocean and it might be peaceful or there might be storm that just enthrall you with the beauty and the magnificence. Where would you go to smell and see and taste and take in beauty? Just let your heart go there for a moment. What does it look like? What does it sound like? Friends, it's from that place that I want to turn into this teaching from my heart and my wife's heart to yours. Paul says, therefore, therefore, since we receive this mercy and this ministry from the heart of God, we do not lose heart. Though it tempts us, we choose to not lose heart. See, we have a treasure in these jars of clay, these permeable, porous jars to show that the all-surpassing power is not the jar, it's God himself. Therefore, we are hard-pressed, but we are not crushed. Therefore, we are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us something that's coming today in part, in one day in its fullness. Jesus, may your river come, your river to flood the nations and to flood our hearts. You are the source of our life. You are our life and you have become our life. The light into our path, the lamp into our feet. We ask that you would shine into the darkness. God, that you would continue to shepherd us through this process of recovering all that you meant when you meant us. We once again give you permission, we give you access, and we ask by your spirit that you will come and do what you love to do for your sons and daughters. John Ortberg is a apprentice, a disciple of Dallas Willard, and he wrote this book, Soul Keeping. And in it, he talks about an American devotional writer who was traveling in Africa. She hired carriers and guides, and it says that she was hoping to make her journey a swift one. And she was pleased with the progress of the many miles they covered on the first day. On the second day, though, all the carriers she had hired remained seated and they refused to move. She was greatly frustrated and asked the leader of the hired hands why they would not continue the journey. He told her on the first day, 
They had traveled too far and too fast, and now they were waiting for their souls to catch up to their bodies. They had traveled too far and too fast, and they were waiting for their souls to catch up to their bodies. Were that we would do that, that there was a way for our souls to catch up. Hopefully, you're remembering something in this homecoming. You're remembering that you have a soul. That God in Genesis says that from the earth, a father grabbed the dirt and breathed his breath in the nostrils of man, and he became a living soul. And this word is brilliant in the original Hebrew, this nefesh, and it's worth looking into. But it's more true to say rather than you have a soul, you are a soul. As John said, it's the gospel project, the restoration of humanity is equivalent to the restoration of our soul. You are a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God. It's why Victor Hugo in Les Miserables in 1845 said, there's one spectacle grander than the sea, and that is the sky. And there's one spectacle grander than the sky, and that is the soul of man. That's the true story. That's why we resonate with the brilliance of these films and the music. Your soul has a personality. It has a landscape. It was made to become wholehearted again. It was made for union with God. And that's what God is up to. Friends, the gospel begins with his initiative. And our great work and heroic act is one of response and participation. It doesn't begin with us. The good news is it begins with him. And as Tozer says, he waits to be wanted. He waits to be wanted. It has a pace. It has a rhythm. As John said, it's finite. It has a portion. It has an infinite need that can only be matched by God's infinite capacity and pleasure to fill that need. But it does have a finite capacity. And so we find ourselves in this world right before you got here, right? In this just disconnect of a world gone mad. And we find ourselves almost choosing some sort of heroic disassociation to navigate the life in which we find ourselves and the person we know we're meant to be. And yet, and yet there's a way. Friends, Chesterton said that every generation loses the gospel, everyone. And it's every generation's charged to partner with God in its recovery. This is nothing new. Paul wrote it to a fellowship just like this, where he said, friends, he said, be sure not to get absorbed and exhausted in your day-to-day obligations. He says that you lose, lose track of time, that part of your soul goes to sleep. And here's what's key. You become unaware of God. He said, be alert, be awake. Don't gain the world and lose your soul. That was 2,000 years ago. That wasn't just before the iPhone. That was before the light bulb. We're talking like candles, right? It wasn't just before travel on Thanksgiving in an airplane. It was before any vessel traveled by sea except by mast, sail, and maybe wind. 
There's nothing new under the sun, but every generation does face some version of an unprecedented problem. And every generation is given a supernatural provision, unique to us, to meet us right in our story. And so what is the way back? We want to be very, very practical, because it's a mad time to live, as John said. And hatred and death are powerful. And so what can we do? What is in our power to recover that thing that's been lost, to reestablish the thing that somehow has become unrooted? How do we arrange our everyday life? The most helpful definition I found for the spiritual practices, because it can get very dogmatic and very religious rather quickly, but the most helpful definition I found is there are practices that are in our power to do that enable us to accomplish what we cannot do on our own. It's this place of union in our activity. We choose to do a thing that is in our power, that connects us supernaturally, allowing us to accomplish what we cannot do on our own. And it's these practices, these small, consistent, heroic acts that usher us in the slow and steady process of wholeheartedness and union. This morning, I want to highlight three simply by way of modeling and inquiry. Where are you? Holy Spirit, shine your light. Where are you in your life with God in these places? The list is infinite, but our sense was three for this morning. The first is the practice of Sabbath. You know, as we've talked about, these things have revolutionized our life and they have, they're shape, shaping us from the inside out. One of my friends said, I feel like I'm always up and always on. Right? There's just no off button. I just even notice in things like YouTube and Spotify now, like they play the next thing. Like even if you don't want to, I was worshiping two days ago and I was in this song and then the next song started, and I'm like, stop, 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 someone grab that. And it just takes you out of the moment, right? It's always up and always on. There's never a break. There's never a pause. But the soul was not designed for that habitat. The soul was meant for rhythm. It was meant for pause. It was meant for reset. Every time we choose Sabbath, we reenact the story from which we came. We reenact God's story himself that on the seventh day, he paused. It wasn't done yet. It was unfinished. And he chose to celebrate the portion, to bless the portion. He chose to enjoy community and to exercise gratitude. For us, like many people, it was in our theology, but it was practically non-existent in our life. And it began years ago with a two-week vacation. Thanks to Reese Bricken, thank you. Seeking the counsel of older men when I turned 30, I was relentless in trying to recover what Jeremiah 6 talks about, this ancient road, this tried and true path at the crossroads that recovers rest and life for our soul. And Reese said, take a two-week vacation, start there. And he wasn't the only one, but he was the first one. That was maddening in my mind, in my budget. I never knew a two-week vacation. I did know a seven-day vacation. My parents both grew up without vacation. And my dad made a commitment out of his poverty when he came into his career that he would provide a seven-day vacation every year. So we did that. 
And so through the help of some very generous friends, we ended up in Hawaii. And on day 13, I will never forget it, with my kids, Hapuna Beach, and I found this new level of my soul. I didn't realize how much I was in the shallows until I stepped into the deep end, sort of by accident, did what was in my power to connect with that which I can't do on my own. And some new normal started. And for years then, I chose to move from vacation to Sabbath because Sabbath is more than vacation, right? It's a different thing. And so I even elected for time without pay to choose to sacrifice for the greater value of rhythm that this world doesn't value, but the kingdom does. And he makes a way where there is no way. And so we've had an annual rhythm of Sabbath, but the deeper development, I think for us, has been the weekly, where we have pulled back the boundaries and made one day a week unavailable to the world. It's not a a rigid, rigid rule, but it is a guideline for the soul. Whenever it's in our power, I'm usually the first one up and we have these essential oil sage sticks that I light one and put it near the fireplace and it just fills our home with the aroma of my favorite smell, the smell of archery season and aspens turning gold. And so the smell of sage fills our house and my hope is when the kids wake up, when my wife wakes up, the first thing they do when they breathe is they breathe in Sabbath. They breathe in something different. Today's different, it's set apart. We try to do what's in our power to have unscheduled, unhurried room to linger over a meal, to laugh, to take a bike ride, to do whatever it is that often we don't get to on other days, to be, as George MacDonald says, gloriously wasteful, gloriously wasteful. What I noticed in Sabbath, when I created room, one of the fruits was deep anxiety which kind of surprised me. This was this time last year, actually 349 days ago, to be specific, um, this constant pattern of as my world got slow, I would feel this basketball in my chest. And it just didn't line up. Kids were well. Sherry was well. My life paused for a moment, and that scared me. But see, it took the slowing down to recover what God was after for the more. Dan Allender has this brilliant quote when he talks about Sabbath, where he says, speed is the ultimate defense, the ultimate defense, the antidote to stopping and really looking. He says, if we really saw what we were doing and who we had become, we feel we might not survive the stopping. So we don't stop. And the faster we go, the harder it becomes to stop. And so the more we practice Sabbath, the less I wanted to, because I had to face some things from deep within me. And here's what I noticed. I was feeling the soul fatigue, decision fatigue, calendar fatigue, feeling just more and more kingdom being entrusted to our care and feeling like I'm not handling it well. And what I realized only in the pause, was I thought it was Sherry and Morgan having this dialogue, you know, a 41-year-old, 43-year-old, a bit mature adults. And yet what I realized was Sherry was getting an injustice because she wasn't getting him. She was getting a different version of him, someone more like this. He's cute, (laughs) he's adorable. 
but he's second grade. Like, he's awkward. He's not equipped to make adult decisions. It's not good for him. It's not kind. And so he just goes into just lockdown, fear, and he becomes a victim and just is in defense. But I wasn't the only one. I equally was engaging in an altogether different person. Um, she's precious. She's precious. I mean, look at that, right? Awesome for recess, <laughs> but making decisions on budgets and people's lives. And so what I noticed during Sabbath was it was these two people trying to live much of our adult life, and it wasn't going so well. And friends, that's okay. That's okay. See, we learned to be very unkind to that Morgan and that Sherry. But it was in the Sabbath, in the rhythm, in the pause, with the anxiety coming up that the father said, I want to care for them. I have things for them. Only through practicing the rhythm. Something else happened um, in that trip in Hawaii. And we were visiting a friend, Sam, who was a new friend at the time. He invited us over for dinner. So we show up at his house, and he's mowing the grass. He has this rectangular yard, and, and Sherry and the, the, the kids and I jump out of the car, and he's kind of doing this odd sort of funky pattern thing, super weird. And I'm thinking, like, Hawaiian, early happy hour. It's kind of, I don't know. And, and I knew this guy just enough to go, okay, I, I trust him, but... Uh, odd. And I also am, built my life around questions and I'm relentlessly inquisitive. So I said, Sam, talk to me. Like, what are you doing? And he looked up with a big smile on his, on his face and he said, I'm playing. <laughs> and so my mind's going through every file, you know, like, no file for that. What are you talking about? Like, Sam, what? And he's just looking at me and smiling. I am, I am off kilter, right? I'm thinking, I have no category for this. And I'm thinking, I have no time for play. I am busy. I have things to do. You have no time for play. You are an important person. You're a big deal compared to me. Like, what do you? It, I popped a gasket. <laughs> and so began, as Jesus loves to do, entice and unravel, pulling the string, just one, and whoosh, walks away, right? And graciously lets the falling of a kingdom. And so began my engagement with play. And play is a defiance of darkness. The best definition I've found is it's chosen engagement in something for no other reason than enjoyment. It feels completely foolish, inefficient, inconvenient, chosen for no other reason than enjoyment. It's a celebration of a deep reality and something in which we can trust. It's a place where we remember that at the story behind all stories and the person that is the fountain of the river, it's a person, the person of God, the heroic Trinity who thinks and feels and cares and plays very much. And perhaps this is why I think I ended up at Walmart last week. Now, you few that don't know me well, that would be the last place that you would find this guy, most likely. It was last Friday night, and I was exhausted from a week of battle. 
running kids around, picked up Abigail from softball. We were waiting, we had an hour before we got Joshua. It's the other side of town. I'm thinking, what do we do? And all I'm mostly thinking about is what I'll be drinking tonight later on, going through what type of beer and really kind of obsessing about it. And it's these moments, right? These two degree shifts where I know Holy Spirit instruct me. And so Abigail and I, my little spicy 12-year-old end up in Walmart. We find kind of, I find, one of the more busy intersections, somewhere between cat litter, baby diapers, and iPads. And I turn to my daughter, and I pull out the running man. (laughs) And then I start doing this freestyle, and my daughter gives me this look. And right when she's in, like, total whore and disassociation, I pull out a horrible version of the white, bald, old, you know, kind of uh, floss. And she's gone. She's gone. And I'm laughing. And people around me are laughing. And I just feel in my spirit like, God, happy Friday. (laughs) Happy Friday. So I spend the next 10 minutes trying to find my daughter somewhere in the frozen foods. She's like huddled up. And we have a great relationship. And she's laughing and totally embarrassed. It totally worked. It changed the atmosphere. It's the last thing I wanted to do, but I've learned, like, I need joy. I need levity. I need play. It was fascinating when I did turn 30 and I sought the life of the kingdom through the lives of elders. And the oldest men and women I could find to seek counsel, over 75 of them over years. It was fascinating. The number one theme of all their counsel collectively was something like this, caught in this quote. A wise elder said, I was a good provider, a faithful husband, but looking back, I realized what I most missed out on was play. Now in the sunset of my life, I often think of how rich it would have been to know that at my eulogy, my children would be able to say, my dad laughed often. He played much and he always lived the message that life has the last word, even in the face of deep challenge. It was a theme, a prevailing theme from the lives of the wise ones, the ones who've passed through their initiation. My 15-year-old son knows this. I love Joshua. and In some ways, he's like a mini-me, but with a whole heart. It's such an odd sort of thing. And I look at him and he looks so familiar at some point and so foreign at other times. Josh was a hard worker. Um, He won the hardest worker for his football team last week for the season. But what they don't know when he's not at practice is he knows how to play. He budgets for play. He knows more of a soul's rhythm than his dad because he's more intact. He knows when enough is enough when we're working. And I just often keep driving, and he goes and gets his bike and does something fun, does something silly, goes to the neighbor's house and plays pool. He knows this, and I'm learning from him how to recover the rhythm of soul. And so I'm learning slowly and surely. I have have this theme of friends buying me camp chairs, two dear friends. 
like, what's the pattern? Someone's trying to tell me something. It's stashed in the back of my truck, and I love to read. And most of those books are for, for as a student and growing and maturing. But what I love most are just novels of heroic men and women. I love great stories that take me back into the larger story, just like the Planet Earth trailer does. So I keep it stashed in my truck. I just finished a great novel, uh, Virgil Wander. Jim, thanks for sharing that with me. And it feels so inefficient to stop and just read a great book for enjoyment's sake. I hired the football team to come over and uh, cut wood to block and split firewood for the winter. And here's where it came from, was there was this question in my heart of what does the 15-year-old need? What does the 15-year-old want? Because as I watched Joshua and I saw parts of his health, it felt like this rogue wave hit me and I could feel this unknown grief within me and it exposed my unhealth, my lack of health in the 15-year-old in me. Joshua turned 15 in May. It took me months to realize I was being triggered in my adolescent years by seeing him live well in areas and I had forgotten. I had not remembered my story. It was beyond my consciousness. And so in seeing my son play, it exposed the broken part of me crying out, where was my guide? Where was a person to initiate the heart of this young boy becoming a man? And so I asked my soul that question now, of what does the 15-year-old need? So I hired these guys to cut firewood and asking that question, it was them as 15-year-olds and me as a 15-year-old. So we had a great time in a blizzard and we had fried chicken for lunch. I bought enough for like 30 guys. Meanwhile, it was like eight of us. We used no plates, we had no side dishes and we took a bunch of breaks. I overpaid them. I gave them a chainsaw lesson and gave them the fundamental safety so that they could have a powerful tool in their hand and each of them take their turn blocking and working the splitter. I got to be 15. I get to be 15. God's bringing that 15-year-old back into the 43-year-old, but it was only through the disruption of play. What about you? What does it bring up in you? Where's that category for you? How comfortable are you doing something for no other motive other than enjoyment? What would God have for you? The third category um, we sense in our spirit to mention, again, it's an infinite buffet of options for these practices. But one for today is practicing placing a governor, placing a limit on what we do, particularly in regard to technology. Technology is just a great on-ramp for the conversation. But in this category, you know, Albert Einstein said technology is like a razor blade in the hand of a three-year-old. That was years ago, before the internet, before the iPhone. It's like a razor blade in the hand of a three-year-old. Son, daughter, do you know how to use that thing? Do you know how to wield it with a sort of fierce mastery? 
some of the deepest theology I've ever received in these years of apprenticeship was this statement from Dallas Willard. He said, it begins with, if you have an itch, don't scratch it. If you have an itch, don't scratch it. What does it take for you to not do what you want to do and to do what you don't want to do? You see, these are the first fruits, the first on-ramp, the first practical steps towards the invitation and the mandate in Genesis as kings and queens to rule and to reign over all that God longs to entrust to our care. And the brilliance of technology is this, this wonderful context to practice not scratching the itch. And I confess, it, it, it's been such a battle and it's a tug of war, often losing, sometimes gaining ground. But I noticed little things like, I love when John was describing about reading. You know, I, when I became a Christian, I always had a backpack with me, a journal, a Bible, and a book I was reading. And any margin that was created, I was saturated in one of those three things. And I remember years of that. And then technology came and somehow, somewhere, those margins were replaced with the device. And in that, it was reaction. It was reaction. And I saw this shift from response, spirit-led, spirit-gaging response to my world to simply reacting. And I've had to ask the question, where do I set the governor? How do I not scratch the itch? Even those simple things, like as soon as I slow down, I start biting my nails, in my desk, in my truck, because I realize I'm always moving. I'm always doing something. And so it's this itch that I get to invite Christ in to help me grow and engage in what I can do to access what I can't do in my own effort. And so when I read, I've learned now, I actually have to turn my phone off and put it in another room. Because now when I read, I'm always looking something up or making a note or following that thing, and I'm actually not reading. And so I had to learn, I'm reading, so my phone's going in another room. Even, I love exercising, I love being outside, I love worship music, I love listening to podcasts. I've had to make the choice right at my limit to say, I don't take technology with me when I exercise outside. So I don't know how far I went, I don't know what time it is, I don't get the worship music, I don't get the podcasts, but the world doesn't get me. I got that back. Right? Just an example, like in our home, we have a technology dump area, and when we come in the house, it all gets dumped in this little mudroom kind of shelf space. And so once we're in our home, it's a technology-free zone, unless we need it. And then we go get it. So we'll get the phone if we have to engage on something, or we'll get the laptop if kids have to do homework. But it doesn't live with us. It lives here. And we live here. Just trying to make active choices of what we can do in our power to take back our life and to restore our soul. You know, the vehicle is a perfect example. It's like one of the last frontiers that we can have back. And one day I was praying and God said, I want your vehicle to be a space of intimacy, not your mobile office. So he asked me to give him my vehicle as a place of intimacy. And often I have to put my phone in the back seat because I don't have the maturity not to touch it if it's next to me. Friends, whatever your frontier is, wherever your itch is. So here's what I noticed 
with technology and every itch that I was trying not to scratch is this always up, this always on, this relentless movement. I began reacting and I found myself a victim. I found just always just on the defense and even orchestrating um, my life of trying to kind of curate and, and make my no's of no, I can't do this and no, I can't be with this person. It was just another template for the self-life that was exhausting. And what I noticed in the reaction it tied to the anxiety was I, I got to this core place in this scratching of the itch of it was asking the question of how am I loved? How do I find love? And it's interesting because we're talking about technology and limits, but it was deeply tied with my soul. And I got to this sentence, I am loved when I come through. We all have a sentence to fill in and I would encourage you to consider it. I am loved when. Not your theology, your creedal statements, but your actions revealing you something of your soul. I found this sentence, I am loved when I come through and I mind it and I excavate, and I work with it because I want to get to the core of my self life, my own salvation project, as John said. And it began to be something like this. It was my greatest fear of what would be spoken as my eulogy, what would be the epitaph on my grave marker set by those that I said I loved the most. And my greatest fear was that it would be said, he came through. He came through proudly and anxiously for many and for much at the expense of who and what mattered most. And right at that place that itched, that I so longed to scratch, I had to exercise the practice of saying, this is the guy that's fueling that story. It's a great heart in the service of the self-life. And I don't want that to be the end of the story. I want my story to be one of deeper union and increasing wholeheartedness. And so in that excavation, in the process of not scratching that itch and living on that frontier of my restoration, I found a yes. And I talked about it a bit on the panel last night, but I found this new place of a yes to God. I want my life in Him and Him alone. I found this yes rising up in the quiet, in the margins, when God had room to whisper because I had no phone with me to say, I with you and you with me. He's engaged and active. And I give my yes to you, God, and to you alone. And it's from that yes place, that yes deep in my masculine soul, I can choose to love my wife that usually begins with, I'm sorry and then goes to, will you forgive me? And then eventually gets to, I don't have a clue, would you risk being known? Because I don't even know what I don't know. It breaks down and gets to the heart of the matter rather quickly. How about you? How about you in the spirit of inquiry? What are the itches that you find yourself scratching habitually? scratching in reaction rather than response. There's no doubt some of these categories and some of the ideas will bring up possibility, 
but they also bring up pain. And that pain leads us to promise. And all of this in homecoming is meant to be an opportunity to practice how to step into more of the kingdom, how to respond to God's initiative. So I want to invite my bride to come up um, in this. And Sherry, in light of that, in these categories and what surfaces, um, where would you like to lead us? I'm leaving a breadcrumb of pens. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> it's like our house. They're littered with pens and books. You're welcome. Last night, Morgan mentioned that you would have to ask me if you wanted to know the fruit of the journey he's been on. And I think of a moment we had recently um, sitting together, and what I observed in my body, Morgan, was that I was at rest. And it came out of my mouth, I observe you, Morgan, to be a restful person to be with for me. I thank you for that. Some of you know some of my story. My story and Morgan's story have corollaries that have, um, maybe as it is for you in your most formative relationships, that you're becoming, and the collisions therein have um, been a part of a larger story of, of both of you or a whole family system getting their heart back. We often notice for us, there's these, right now I feel like he's, he's like, running after God in response to being loved. And I'm like, oh, I want more. And, and it's, it's gone all that certain way. And surely it's also gone where we have um, hurt each other deeply, a lot, often. And um, so I come here today, would like to, to offer some more of what has come out of our journey. Um, but I offer with such um, a deep reverence for you and your lives. And I've, we've been talking about this, but as we have been praying in advance for you all, the picture of the glory of your lives that we have gotten. And so I come here, I come so low in such reverence for your lives in God. You are so glorious and we are so honored to be here. So one of the questions that um, I have asked myself in, my, um, in the big picture and in these moments is, is how do I receive more of the love of God? I know, I know that we were made by God, for God, to live in union with God. I know his love is the answer, but the how, the means of receiving that love have have been so um, curious to me. And I'm so grateful this entire conference is is reminding me and and teaching me new things about how. And as I've been looking for practices um, to respond to uh, this invitation of Jesus for union, um, I wanted to just offer two sort of guidelines, two rails that have been so helpful for me. And the first is, it all comes from Matthew 7. You will know it by its fruit. <clears throat> so here's the fruit of the pra- that I'm using to gauge what practices are worth my time. The fruit of increasing in my capacity to receive God's love. This is like rail, the rail on my right. To receive God's love, to love God, to love myself, and to love others in the overflow of that love and increasing my capacity for union. So I'm very interested in, in kind of a, uh, observing what is the fruit of a practice in that vein of increasing my capacity to receive love, to love God, to love myself, to love others in the overflow of that love. My, on my left is 
the recovery of our humanity. Morgan said that, what is it that's helping me learn how to recover my image bearing, both generally and then specifically to rule and to reign? So, so really being curious practices that help me recover my humanity, recover my image bearing. But today I would like to offer from my own practice and, and organized practice of, of receiving love. I loved Alex's language, having the seat of love healed in me. And as John was describing this um, dance, this, this dialectic between um, our union heals us and then our healing increases our union and then our union heals us and our healing increases our union in this dynamic relationship between union and healing and union and healing. So what I would like to do is just go into about five minutes of prayer. And what I would, um, I'm, my inspiration that I'm drawing from is um, primarily actually uh, Paul and Jesus in this, in this case. I'm curious about Paul's capacity for attachment. Stacy talked to us last night that our physical need, our, our physiology, we are designed for secure attachment as we were designed for um, food and water. And as I share it captivating, what I have known most in my life is the agony of insecure attachment and this relentless look for a place to belong. C.S. Lewis has an incredible essay on the inner circle, but that, that feeling of the, there's an inner circle out there and I so desperately want to be a part and I don't know where I belong. And we find the scandal of the gospel that the heroic fellowship of the Trinity, to borrow John and Brent's phrase from Sacred Romance, this invitation that we can come into the inner circle of the universe. And again, it all sounds really beautiful, and, and I respond to the beauty of the idea, but how does Sherry Snyder come into the inner circle of the Trinity on any given Tuesday <clears throat> or Saturday? And so um, what we have found is for us, Jesus is leading us to practice affection and now leading, going into uh, connecting with Paul. So we see in the New Testament, Paul has, seems to have this incredible capacity to attach. I'm so moved by some of the vividness of his language. He'll be like, I longed to come for you. And then we were ripped apart. And in, in uh, his letter to the Th Thessalonians in the like, beginning of the second chapter, you see this like his longing, his love. We longed for you. You were so dear to us, he says in the first chapter of Thessalonians. We see in the opening to his letter to the Philippians, he says, for the, um, I long for you. God is my witness. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so what I became curious about, what Morgan and I are curious about, is how do we host the affection of Christ Jesus. What, what is that? What is Jesus? What is your affection? And then how do we host it in ourselves? And what we are finding is this place of union and inner healing are synthesizing for us. So we have a practice of practicing affection for our young places. And so that is what I would uh, we'll just close with a few moments of practicing that. So you saw my seven-year-old. So when I was four, my brother and I were wrestling on a brick patio, and I fell down, and I knocked my baby teeth out, and I was a devoted thumb sucker. So when my big, my like adult teeth grew in, they were like impressive. They were really impressive. I, and I observed when I saw that photo of me, I was awash in affection. And I, I guarantee you, 15 years ago, I would have looked at my teeth, and like, I wouldn't have wanted to feel this, but this like, 
a pulse or a, a flash of contempt and um, would have come rung in my body. And instead today, and I was like, Jesus, it's happening, the affection of Christ Jesus for that seven-year-old. And she was, she was, she was, um, she was trembling in insecure attachment at that time. And I loved her when I saw her today. I, I, I say that if this can happen for me, who has had so much um, absolute um, division in my soul from self-hatred and self-rejection, um, may it be for all of us. So we're just going to practice. Um, so Jesus, we just come as, as, as John and as saints for the millennia before us have taught us, we breathe. We take a deep inhale. And we take a long exhale. And Jesus, first we come and we break any agreement, Jesus, that we have made that something in our past permanently prohibits the well-being that we long for in the present and in the future. In the name of Jesus, we break the agreement. Jesus, I ask that you would come, and deeper than words, God, would you take us to the place, Father, where we have um, a, a deep rooted doubt as to the possibility of well-being for us, given our story. And Jesus, we give you access and permission there. And Lord, I ask that you would even, um, God, for some of us, we just stay there. We just stay interfacing with you around the parts of our story that we believe permanently prohibit the wholeness, the recovery of soul, belonging, well-being. Jesus, come. And Jesus, we now are wanting to practice um, from our union with you, Christ in us, enveloping our young places with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus shared with us in um, that, that incredible uh, conversation with his disciples recorded in the Gospel of John. He said, in John, as recorded in John 15, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. So I invite you to call to mind, um, notice what's happening inside of you, and be curious about, um, for you today, it might be you're gravitating toward your inner teenager, your 15-year-old. It might be you're gravitating toward your 7-year-old. It might be you just stay present. Um, you are reconciling and practicing affection for your present tense self. It might be that none of this is connecting for you, and we rest that, as Morgan said, God is always initiating. And that which is um, true, we are the sons of God in reality. Now we become the sons of God and experience that whether you experience it or not does not violate the truth that you are held right now in the affection of Christ Jesus. It matters not whether you can tap into the experience. 
but Jesus come. And friends, I just invite you to notice if you can um, let us uh, call to mind, and again, try easy in these kinds of moments, the, the, the relationship between effort and ease, air on ease, air on ease. Just notice if a picture of yourself, um, present tense, you or younger you, can you hold, as John invited us to practice attention, It's been said that love's first act is attention. So can you hold a place um, inside of you, hold your attention there, and when you find your attention diverting, just simply uh, guide your attention back with ease. And then now see if you can actually bring the affection of Christ Jesus in your present tense self for that younger place or that present tense self. And we'll just pause here. And maybe you actually allow the corners of your mouth to lift. And maybe you actually allow some um, manifestation of your body. For me, sometimes I actually will, um, I will give my, sounds weird, but I, I will give myself a hug and I'll begin to rock. Or I just practice smiling at myself. For I long for you. I, myself, I speak in the first person. Now we say, Jesus, um, would you grant in me a longing with the affection of Christ Jesus for all of my young places? Every place in me that I'm ashamed of, embarrassed of, horrified over. We ask for um, the embodiment of the affection of Christ Jesus. The love, Father, that you had for Jesus, that Jesus has for us. And then Jesus says in John 17, and the love that the Father has for me, so does the Father has, have for you. Papa, your love. Come to the agony, God, where we have insecure attachment. And let us find our place in the inner circle. Heal our union with you, God. Heal and integrate us. We ask for our whole heart back. And we ask for the scandal of affection for every part of us that has been deemed unlovable, unacceptable, Come, Jesus, may we become a safe place for every aspect and dimension of our story. And may we we participate on the earth with granting and holding safe space for others and their healing and belonging. In the name of the affectionate one, of the Christ who comes low, Amen. Thank you. Thank you, baby. Friends, there is a great hope.
There is a great hope. There is a power at work. The kingdom is enlarging. The river is coming. The wave is building. And first, it must begin within us that we would receive and respond. It's a narrow road with a narrow gate. Few find it. But at every moment of every day in every one of our lives, the door is being made available to us. And that's our hope. So much of this kingdom life happens in the everyday life with God. In what one of my dear friends has helped me see is two degree shifts, not 90, not 180, but two degree shifts of that which is in our power to do. There were some young men that were meeting with Dallas Willard and they asked him about his spiritual practices and they said, how do you spend your 15 minute quiet time? In his Dallas-esque way as a sage and an elder at the gate, he said to these young men, I believe that God is rather unconcerned with your 15 minute quiet time. (laughs) He is far more concerned what it is that you choose to do with the other 23 hours and 45 minutes of your days. And he went on to say, the great work of the kingdom is to arrange our days so that we are experiencing total contentment and joy and confidence in our everyday life with God. And friends, this is process. This is over time. And so as I read that, where I want to live is that I am experiencing deeper contentment, deeper joy, and increasing confidence in my everyday life with God, that more parts of me, as Sherry just led us through in prayer, are being given over to more parts of God, that the slow and steady process of two-degree shifts lead to a transformation that the natural becomes supernatural. As St. Francis says, start with what is necessary. Simply start with what is necessary. And then you will find that you are doing what's possible. And in time, and over time, suddenly, you will be doing the impossible. You will become what you most lack in time. It's the promise of the gospel. You will become the queens and the kings to whom God can gladly entrust the care of his kingdom in this world and even more so in the world to come. So what is it that you will do in your two-degree shift? It begins with trust and confidence to receive the river of life, to receive it into your body, into your mind, into your soul and spirit. Where and how do you need to receive to be saturated, as Stacy talked about last night, with worthiness of love and belonging, to be filled with robust well-being, as Isaiah says, the prophet in 66, to be saturated right in your ordinary, everyday living. I want to be saturated. I want to be filled um, to overflowing that robust well-being would fill 
my entire soul. And that as Isaiah says that against all odds, I and we will become the kind of people who will burst with joy and feel 10 feet tall, even in a world that is not yet. I bless you, and I'd love to hear your stories, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Become Good Soil podcast.